This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. So, Shane, why are you best prepared to be commander in chief? Well, I love men in uniform. (laughs) (laughs) Fact check, true. And you need access to the top secret info on UFOs. Let's be honest. Yes, that's the only reason. (laughs) I mean, I could tell you a lot of reasons. Like, I'm really good at making decisions. You know, just run uh, on that platform. Be like, yeah. I will declassify the UFOs. I will, I will give UFOs. you the aliens. Yes, <laughs> and I'll I will take peri- the men in uniform. <laughs> <laughs> I think the decision is obvious. Hello, and welcome to Rational Security, the quite common under American law edition. <laughs> Extremely normal. Totally cool, yeah, totally very legal. Very stable genius. Very stable, very stable. Pro tip, if you if you ever get a letter from Rudy Giuliani, particularly if you were recent, recently elected of a country that begins with, just to be precise, this is quite common under American law. Presume it is not, that whatever he is talking about is not. Yeah, I just if you get any raise. email from anyone or letter that begins with what I'm about to tell you is extremely normal, yeah. it's not. I think that's right. It, 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 if you have to declare, it's like the the presence of the word democratic in countries' names, <laughs> you know, the, the Democratic People's Republic of Tyranny. Like, um, mm, you know, no. all words dem- named democratic in the names of countries are false. All letters that declare what they're proposing to be perfectly normal (laughs) and common under U.S. law are not. Are definitely not. We are going to talk about that extraordinary letter uh, and other things that were released along with yesterday on the podcast today. I'm here in the Jungle Studio with my good friends, Susan Hennessy, Ben Wittes, and Tamara Kaufman Wittes. Hello, everybody. Hey, hi. Uh, We are on the verge of an impeachment trial, you guys. The impeachment trial is about to begin in earnest. We're going to recap the latest uh, on the podcast, a lot has actually happened just in the past you know, day or so. Uh, the Trump administration deals with the fallout from the strike that killed Qasem Soleimani or Suleimani or Suleimani or Salamoni. I've heard like, a lot of different Or Salami. Things. Salami. This is like Queso Gaddafi salami. all over again. It really is in, yeah. more, in more ways than one. And in the final debate before voting starts, Democratic presidential candidates have little to say about foreign policy. What did they say? We're going to talk about that as well. Um, let's start with the big news. Um, as we tape this, the House – has the House officially voted to send over or they are voting literally right now on the impeachment articles to send over? I think they are voting. but uh, Nope. They voted. They have voted. They voted. OK. Voted okay. 30 minutes ago. Uh, not unexpected. The Senate trial is expected to start. Next week, there will be some pomp and circumstance uh, and lots of juicy process before that happens. Go listen to Lawfare's podcast on that, by the way, if you want the blow by blow for how this is likely to go. That was actually – that was entertaining. 
Yeah, it was. We had fun with it. It gets exciting. It was fun. Um, but let's talk about sort of the, the latest, and particularly um, this evidence that was released by the House Intelligence Committee last night, from which this letter that we were reading from earlier from Rudy Giuliani to the President-elect of Ukraine, uh, Zelensky. Uh, was included. Um, ben, walk us through what this information shows. We've got letters. We've got text messages. <clears throat> this was information that, correct me if I'm wrong, investigators in the Southern District of New York were looking at. They gave it back to Lev Parnas, who shared it with the House. Lev Parnas, who, of course, was one of these two associates, Levin Igor, uh, Rudy Giuliani's hookups in Ukraine, who've been all in this mix uh, Lev Parnas has been saying for quite a while now he has a story that he wants to tell, and it looks like these documents that we got last night are telling a bit of that story. So what stuck out to you? Well, so I, I think there's really kind of three categories of information in here, um, maybe more, but but at least three. So one, the, the ones that got the most attention are these sort of weird, like film noir-like, you know, sort of... Uh, surveillance of Ambassador Maria Yovanovitch uh, and this sort of super creepy activity that they were texting each other about and who knows if how real it was or how serious the threat was, but that gives rise to a at least plausible inference that they were surveilling and maybe threatening uh, the U.S. ambassador in Ukraine. Who should we remember? Should remember President Trump said in his call to Zelensky, she's going to go through some, some stuff. And she also stuff. testified that she had been warned by Ukrainian officials. And, and she had and the been, State Department. And she was removed citing a, a sort of Security imminent threat to right. her. So it's not uh, – I don't know how serious that stuff is, but it does dovetail with other information in the record. And, and it is the sort of thing that – you know, security personnel uh, take very seriously with respect to U.S. personnel. So that's basket number one. Uh, basket number two is sort of stuff that we just kind of know they were up to stuff, but we don't really know what it is. But that feeds this perception, right? Rudy Giuliani is running this whole kind of operation in Ukraine, and he's got these two guys uh, working with him both of whom have subsequently been indicted. And there's a whole lot of traffic back and forth that just relates to whatever they're doing. And at least to me, it was not wholly, it didn't actually shed all that much light on what they were doing. It's just a sort of feverish basket of activity with respect to whatever the heck it is they were up to, which presumably Lev Parnas is talking about to prosecutors and to others who are interested, including we hear Rachel Maddow this evening. Mm. And the third basket, which I think is the most immediately important, is this letter, which is uh, Rudy Giuliani saying to the president of Ukraine uh, that he, just to be precise, I represent President Donald J. Trump as a private citizen, not as president of the United States. This is quite common under American law. Totally cool. Because the duties and privileges of a president and private citizen are not the same thing. So leave aside whether it is totally common under U.S. law. It, by the way, is totally common for the president to have public counsel and private counsel. It is not totally common for those private counsel to be reaching out to foreign heads of state and asking 
asking them for favors. Just um, to be clear, when the president asked me to do this, he's wearing his private citizen Right, hat. exactly. <laughs> so this is a, I think, what we call a highly incriminating document. And uh, Well, it, and that's before you even get to the part of it where he says he's doing it with the president's knowledge. Exactly. <laughs> he is doing it with I mean, the president. And consent. And, and what he's doing and I think this is the part that's not getting enough attention, how closely this dovetails with other evidence in the record. So the president, when he is you know, uh, approached by his own staff who want, are advocating the normal relations with Ukraine, he says, go talk to Rudy, right? Um, which is consistent with this letter that Rudy represents him for purposes of these, I don't know, transactions with Ukraine. Uh, and secondly, when he talks to uh, Zelensky himself on July 25th, he says to him, I want you to talk to Rudy and the attorney general. So here you have him telling his staff that Rudy is kind of his agent on this. You have him telling Zelensky that Rudy is his agent. And here you have a letter where Rudy is saying to Zelensky, I am the president's agent in his personal capacity, and I'm operating with his knowledge and consent. And I think that really does, you know, not that there was a whole lot of doubt about what the facts here was, but I think it really does complete a kind of, you know, the the penning in of the horse here on what happened when the president asked for these investigations of Biden. Susan, yeah. to that point, too, Neil Katyal and Josh Geltzer had a column in the Post this morning pointing out that a lot of what this evidence shows as well is that the point wasn't to actually get an investigation going. It was to get Zelensky to announce an investigation. The implication there being what President Trump wanted was the smear and the suspicion, not the actual investigation of corruption that he professes to want to root out. Right. And and to that point and to the extent anybody um, is tempted to minimize this as communications between two people who aren't really you know involved and are just kind of you know randomly talking back and forth. This also shows communications with Yuri Litsenko, who is the top prosecutor in Ukraine at the time. This is the so whenever they're saying we want you we want you to announce investigations, they're not talking to some random Ukrainian dude. They're talking to the actual top prosecutor at the time. And so this actually is evidence of the attempt itself, the effort, and, and that direct connection between, you know, a, Ukrainian officials in a position to give Trump what he wants and the direct ask from Giuliani being sort of um, translated and mediated by Parnas. Yeah. And I think the other thing that comes through, and Ben laid it out well, is that, you know, Giuliani emphasizes in this letter that he's the president's private attorney. But the president's own communications to his official staff, to his diplomatic corps, and to Zelensky erase any boundary between public and private and say, I, you know, when he says, I want you to talk to Rudy and the attorney general, he's basically saying public interest, private interest, it's all for me, baby. Just do it for me. And that is at the heart of the impeachment itself. That's that is corruption by definition, the use of public office for private gain. And so, you know, I, th I think if you're just looking at – if you had questions about intent, I think that this clears them up if you're acting in good faith. And of course, you know, one of the questions I have is given that all of this is coming out after the articles of impeachment are concluded, given that the Senate is already being so reticent about – 
getting its own evidence in the form of witnesses. Um, what's going to happen to all this information that was released yesterday in the impeachment trial? How is it going to figure in? Yes, yeah, so I think that's really critical. And if you really, you know, there's been a lot of focus on sort of was it a, a smart move or or not a smart move for Pelosi to sort of delay handing over the articles. If we just take a moment to think about what information has come out since the Schiff report, the mm-hmm. Hipsy majority report came out, sort of offering the initial narrative account of here's what we think it feels happened. Like years ago, it does feel like years ago, but. But this is right. So we, we have all of these. Uh, we have all of these documents. Um, we have John Bolton's offer to testify and an agreement to comply with a subpoena if it's issued. We have New York Times reporting um, of multiple Oval Office meetings with John Bolton, uh, Mike Pompeo, and Mark Esper, the Secretary of Defense, uh, in which reportedly they were you know, directly prevailing upon Trump to release um, uh, to release this military hold. Uh, and we have the newly or the unredacted or leaks of. Pre- previously redacted OMB emails that both demonstrate profound concerns on the OMB side regarding the legality and the direct communication that this order was coming from the president of the United States. And it was not at least identified at the time as being for any of the reasons that the White House had said. That is an astonishing amount of information. No, it doesn't change our change the sort of fundamental picture of what we understood happened. But in terms of development and significance, and then there are things that also are breadcrumbs for there might even be more to this story. And so, Tammy, I think your point is really important. So whenever we think about, for example, what appears to be, you know, threats against Yamanovich and, and potentially sort of a, a threats to a United States ambassador, that's tangentially related to the impeachment inquiry. It seems unlikely that that's really going to come up and be fully developed. Does the House just drop it? Do they go back to demand the executive branch do an investigation? What happens to all of these sort of seeming loose ends that that actually seem like really, really important questions? Um, you know, I, I do think that's a that's a huge thing. Um, and of course, we'll see. You know, Ben mentioned that Lev Parnas is going to sit down with Rachel Maddow. You know, look as a television viewer, I'm uh, you know excited to to watch it as a fan of Rachel Maddow. I like what I get for her um, as an attorney. Who on earth is advising these people to go on national television while they're, you know, facing indictment? This is like just it's wild the situation we're in. And so what other information is going to come either from these people and what other documents exist? It makes me wonder if we're going to answer that question, but it makes me wonder if we're in one of these phases, not unlike when we were in the thick of the Mueller report where there was just all kinds of stuff bursting into the public consciousness and we didn't yet know how it was going to end up in a report or be or compose any kind of official proceeding. I mean, the answer ultimately might be, where does this stuff go? Is it goes to the voters, right? And Mike Bloomberg with his money machine making ads about Donald Trump. Uh, He's been too busy making ads about meatballs recently. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I think that there – that, but that is a double-edged reality, I think, Shane, what you just pointed out. It is a lot like what happened with Mueller where we had dribs and drabs of information, all of it troubling, much of it deeply incriminating. Um, but the the narrative thread gets lost and there's no single sort of gotcha moment, no single smoking gun, although in some ways this Giuliani letter really feels to me like a smoking gun, at least on – the president's corrupt intent, as I said. But, you know, some of this stuff, I'm sure the Democrats will work to keep alive through normal oversight activity in House committees. I mean, the question of 
threats to Ambassador Yovanovitch that were not followed up on by the State Department um, is something that I have no doubt, you know, the House is going to be demanding state and diplomatic security answer questions about. And you'll have all of the tug of war between the executive branch and legislative branch on that oversight stuff. But it really does put a challenge in front of the impeachment managers and lead manager, Adam Schiff, to ensure that they are telling a coherent story, even in the face of continued revelations, that whatever else comes out, they can integrate it into a clear narrative. The reason that Nancy Pelosi, one of the reasons why she felt capable going forward with impeachment after resisting it for a long time was the clarity of the issues at stake in this Ukraine scandal. And, you know, I think every additional disclosure shakes that clarity. I just want to mention very briefly before we close this segment, uh, other people who are watching, it seems very closely, uh, these proceedings and the question of Burisma and Hunter Biden and all these things that Donald Trump has been interested in uh, are the GRU hackers that broke into the DNC in 2016. Uh, there was a great article from the New York Times in the past couple of days uh, that this uh, – I think it's Fancy Bear. Is it Fancy Bear or Cozy Bear? I can't remember which bear it is. I think it was Fancy. It was Fancy Bear. I think you're right. Um, uh, according to their sources, uh, was spearfishing, trying to get in, apparently did successfully get into email accounts of employees at Burisma, which is the energy company that Hunter Biden sat on. Why wouldn't they? Exactly. I mean, that's to your point, Ben, that's exactly where I was going with this. And I mean, it's also happening at a time, they believe, back in November uh, when you know we were in the full thick of the trial, just uh, or not the trial, but the hearings in the House just finishing up. Um, you know, we've talked about the Russians being up to their old tricks uh, for 2020. <laughs> this is literally the same play uh, that they ran. We don't know if they've got the emails yet or what they've released, but this is this is how it began with the DNC and with the Hillary Clinton campaign. So I think it's significant. I, I also think there's a note of caution um, before sort of the, the New York Times um, was a little bit credulous in its reporting, right? So um, sort of this is uh, a particular cybersecurity company that's making this attribution, doing it in circumstances in which they don't appear to have firsthand uh, access to is the it a underlying Ukrainian cybersecurity it is company not, uh, run by a, 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 a very rich Ukrainian? Notably, uh, you know, <laughs> CrowdStrike actually did um, produce huge amounts of documentation um, to sort of to back up their claim of what the GRU had done in 2016. This is a far thinner, at least the, the initial presentation. And so um, in some ways, it, it's sort of it's also a repeat of 2016 and that now there's this claim of GRU hackers but how clear is it and and is you know people who are sort of seizing on the narrative you know needing to go slow and and wait and get all of the sort of the the really relevant um, pieces of the puzzle before we can say for sure what exactly happened um, of course the mere fact that there's now this idea of Burisma having been hacked and having been hacked by the GRU will inevitably give credence to documents that are produced, you know, that purport to be from this source. And so there is sort of um, an, an interesting and a little bit of a scary sort of 
interaction between, you know, initial technically responsible, but sort of the headlines maybe overly representing, um, you know, what a a private company has determined, um, you know, actually sort of fueling and melding with the landscape that allows sort of disinformation or potential future disinformation to really take root. And just to be clear, I was joking. Uh, CrowdStrike is not a Ukrainian company, and and Dmitry Alperovich is American, not Ukrainian, not Ukrainian, and he is of Russian origin, not Ukrainian origin. Well, let's talk about another story where the initial headlines turn out to maybe not be the whole story. Um, when President Trump ordered the drone strike that killed the head of the Quds Force in Iran, Qasem Soleimani, Turns out, according to reporting that we had uh, recently in the Washington Post, on that same day, the U.S. also tried to kill another member of the Quds Force, this time their main guy in Yemen uh, and someone who's been described as the chief of the uh, the finance arm of the Quds Force, Quds Force man named Shalai. Um, that operation was apparently not successful. We still don't understand entirely why that was the case. But Susan, what struck us who were reporting on this story at the time when we learned of this was – Okay, so if the strike on Soleimani, Soleimani, God, now I'm doing it. See, now I'm doing it. I started doing it. The strike on Queso Salami (laughs) (laughs) was all about, you know, deterring an imminent attack, which, of course, now the administration is on like the eighth iteration of of the rationale for. But it was portrayed as we have to get this bad guy because he's planning bad things. Now there's also this other strike on a guy that they didn't talk about. Um, And there's even been some reporting in The New York Times about possible considerations of sinking a command ship in the Persian Gulf and possibly even related to this cyber attacks on energy infrastructure in Iran. It seems that this operation to get Soleimani was much more multifaceted than we understood. Do you read it that way? And if so, like what are the I mean, the policy and frankly, the legal implications of that. Yeah, like I think what we can clearly say at this point is that the story doesn't add up. And so we can offer the legal analysis based on lots of different forms of facts and ultimately whether or not this is justified as a statutory matter, as a constitutional matter, as a matter of international law is dependent on the actual facts and issue. And so this is not consistent with the initial explanation of what the administration did. Uh, in targeting Soleimani and why it did so and what the legal basis for. And so this is a little bit, um, I think, is a little bit of a, of a time in which um, sort of overly legalizing it is sort of missing the point. And we actually even heard Bill Barr say, oh, I think this imminence question is kind of a red herring. You know, the imminence president is, said it didn't matter. It, right, the, <laughs> because, oh, well, you know, there's some legal justification out there for pretty much anything. So don't really worry about it. That's the administration lying and obfuscating and misleading about what occurred is deeply, deeply troubling. And it is especially troubling in an area in which the executive branch is venturing into the constitutional war-making powers of Congress. And so this is an area in which at very best, you know, the executive can claim shared constitutional authority. And for them to be lying or hiding what happened, the the sort of the degree of 
the potential, you know, structural injury to things like this, I, I actually think R is not getting nearly enough attention and, and play. And I, I, this is one of the rare times that I worry that actually diving too deep into the weeds of legal analysis for potential hypotheticals ends up masking that this is a completely unprecedented situation and that it's a completely unacceptable situation because I worry that people see, uh, you know, legal analysts taking on, okay, well, assuming these facts are true, it's not that different from what the Obama administration said, or it does fall within sort of this this potential legal theory. And so it, it can mask what I think is a pretty astonishing and, and alarming situation, including that the president pretty clearly was lying about there being intelligence that for M were were being targeted in some way. Yeah, I I think that's all true, and I would agree. I would also point to the fact that the intensity of media fixation on legal questions, both around imminence, but also around bombing cultural sites, you know, that the fact that that uh, cable channels spent so many hours debating those questions rather than asking. What's what's the administration trying to do here? What's the mm-hmm. strategy here? Yeah. I mean, you know, my immediate reaction to the Soleimani strike was, OK, I want to know what the intelligence was that led them to this decision. But really, I want to know what their strategy is. What are they trying to achieve with respect to the Iranians? And as the imminence debate has proceeded and the reporting, the very good reporting by The Post and other outlets with the sort of behind the scenes TikTok has come through, I think what's clearer is the um, policy rationale behind this assassination, which is what it was. Um, <laughs> and uh, and that policy rationale is, uh, I think, twofold. Number one, deterrence. After not responding, not responding, not responding to Iranian provocation, they decided that they would respond in a very forceful manner to set the Iranians back on their heels and make them become much more careful in calculating their own behavior. And number two, decapitation or disabling of the IRGC's capabilities to carry out this kind of regional troublemaking. And those, you know, both of those policy rationales are very much like what we've seen the Israelis do in targeted killings of Hamas leaders, for example, or Hezbollah leaders over the years, which have as primary objectives deterrence and decapitation slash, you know, lowering capacity. And so if we understand the policy rationale through all the fog and noise of the BS that they are spewing about why they did this, then let's start to evaluate this action on the basis of what it seems like they were actually trying to achieve. You know, and therefore you immediately ask, well, is this deterring additional Iranian behavior? We've had rocket attacks by Iranian-linked militias in Iraq on our bases uh, since the Soleimani strike. We obviously had a, an Iranian retaliation that had as a really unfortunate fog of war consequence um, the downing of this jet full of third country nationals, um, civilian jet. You know, we haven't yet seen a major Iranian provocation along the lines of what we'd seen since last June. So maybe it is deterring them. Or maybe they're just planning something, you know, careful and significant. Maybe 
they're taking that time. On decapitation and disabling, you know, the United States has a lot of experience killing the number three in Al-Qaeda, right? Wasn't the joke that that was the most dangerous position in Al-Qaeda because we've eliminated that person like a half a dozen times? And so, you know, we know that that too is basically a matter of time. And so was it worth taking the United States to the brink of military confrontation without public debate, without congressional authorization, without um, sharing sufficient information, not just with the American uh, audience, but with the world, with allies who are fighting alongside us on the ground in Iraq? Was it worth doing that without the preparation for taking that risk? And, you know, I said immediately afterwards, I don't think it's justifiable without thinking it through and doing the risk mitigation. And now that the rationale is clearer, no imminent threat, I really don't think it's justifiable. And and, and Ben, I think to had, had the strike on um, Shalai and, and Yemen been successful, we wouldn't be talking about a sort of you know strategic elimination of the head of the Quds Force, we would be talking about a U.S. operation coordinated in two countries aimed at senior leadership of the Iranian military. I think it would have had a, a totally different kind of cast. And particularly if, you know, we sunk a Iranian command and control vessel in the Persian Gulf, I mean, it seems like we'd be talking now about are we already at war with Iran? A hundred percent. Yeah, so I... I agree with that, and I think I, I actually I can't decide whether what I'm about to say is more generous or less than what Tamara and Susan said. But I I don't want to actually do the retroactive strategic analysis or the retroactive legal analysis on their behalf. Um, it seems to me they are the executive branch of government. It's their job to explain what the legal theory that makes it lawful to uh, attack, uh, you know, sort of senior government officials and operatives of a sovereign nation that you are purportedly not at war with, understanding that they are a uh, uh, running a, a designated foreign terrorist organization. They are not running an organization against whom Congress has authorized the use of force. And so is the theory here that there is some armed conflict going on between the United States and Iran that none of us were aware of? Is that the theory? Is the theory that these are force protection actions with respect to our forces deployed in Iraq, in which case why are we operating in Yemen? Uh, or is the theory that this is somehow authorized by the 2001 AUMF, in which case you know, what was the purported connection between Iran and uh, the AUMF constellation of entities uh, that— The threat from Iraq, th that the we, 2002 AUMF. Well, so—but if it's the 2002 AUMF, why are we operating in Yemen? Right. Right? And so I don't—I I think the whole thing doesn't make a lot of sense. And by the way, I also—and and I'm disinclined, as Susan says, to spend a lot of time trying retroactively to reverse engineer a logic to it. It seems to me you're the administration. You came forward and did this action. You should send a letter to Congress, a war powers letter or, or you know what, or send somebody up to testify to explain what the legal theory was that got you there. That's what normally happens, and that's what you should be doing. 
I feel similarly, actually, about the strategic calculate uh, evaluation that that Tamara just did, which is sort of going back and trying to piece together what the strategic logic of this must have been. I actually think it's like amazing that you just gave a better strategic account of what they're doing and thinking than I have heard from any of them, which, you know, is... It may be because I actually have more experience with national security <laughs> policy than most of them. Well, well okay, I'm not... I'm not gonna, I mean, to I'm, be immodest for a minute. I'm not going to fight with you about that, and probably I would even agree with you about that. But again, they're the administration and you're not. And, you know, you've had a sequence of these people go on television giving wildly conflicting accounts of what the purpose was, citing wildly conflicting intelligence assessments from the president. There were four embassies under attack or a possible attack to Pompeo. There was an imminent he was he had gone to Iraq to conduct imminent uh, threats uh, to Esper saying, well, there was some stuff, you know, like I wouldn't say I heard anything about four embassies, but, you know, there was some it wasn't going to be good stuff, you know, and they're saying, you know, there's just there's no consistent message about what they were trying to do, except the sort of chest thumping. We're tough on Iran stuff. And I, I just think the administration's got to do better on that. So I would flip the whole question around. Stop, and not not you, Shane, but stop asking us to figure out what your strategic and legal logic was. You fucking tell us well, what your strategic <laughs> and legal logic was. Well, I mean, precisely. And I mean, again, I'm, as, as you are, I'm, I mean, I'm, I'm sort of disinclined except as a journalist to try and, you know, reconstruct what they did because that's sort of partly our job. But I mean, it seems obvious, it would become I mean, obvious, but one potentially cogent explanation for all of this, uh, and I think a lot of the reporting bears this out, uh, is that one day the president decided, I want to go kill some Iranians. And it's like, okay, better we better go figure out the rationale for doing this because the president said we're doing it. So I think that's a huge part of the, of the true explanation. And by the way, that does not sound in Article 2 or, the, or either AUMF or – but, you know, I think it was a post story, actually, where, you know, it really said the reason, you know, it came down to he really didn't want to look weak compared to Obama. And he was really upset about the idea that people might think this was a Benghazi situation. And so he chooses the and hardest. That he openly admitted that he needed that there were certain senators he needed on his side in impeachment who were pressuring him to take stronger action on Iran. Right. And these are not good strategic arguments. And by the way, they are also not good legal arguments. And so I, I, I think, unfortunately, what you're describing is probably, you know, some substantial portion of the yeah. truth. Well, someday soon, I don't know how soon, uh, the Democratic Party is going to pick a nominee to challenge President Trump for his office. The and Tulsi Gabbard era begins. <laughs> Put that into the universe. Uh, and... These questions are obviously going to be front and center. Who knows where we will be with the conflict in Iran by the time the Democrats choose a nominee. Um, but Tammy, last night was the final Democratic debate before voters go to caucus in Iowa. And there was foreign policy discussion at the top. Uh, but I gather you think it was limited and ultimately uh, dissatisfying or not or unsatisfying. Tell us why. 
Well, so if you have watched these primary debates throughout the the nearly year that this campaign has already been underway, it's been frustrating as a foreign policy person to see how little time and attention is given to foreign policy in these debates. Now, we know that foreign policy rarely figures heavily into an American presidential election. Um, and we also know that it's really hard to have a substantive in-depth debate on any topic when you have, you know, 11 candidates on the stage. But, you know, we did – we were at the brink of, of a major military confrontation a couple of weeks ago and we are in the midst of a major public debate about presidential authority in war powers and how the American people feel about the prospect of a war with Iran. And so – and we have a debate with only six people on the stage. So I I was expecting more time on foreign policy and to be fair, more time was spent in this debate on foreign policy, quite a bit of time you know, in the context of a debate that lasted, what, about an hour and 20 minutes or so, a full 30 minutes or so was foreign policy. What was unsatisfying was both the way the moderators chose to ask the questions, what they asked and what they didn't ask, and then the way the candidates chose to answer um, what they wanted to address and what they didn't want to address. And to me, the net result was a really thin not just unsatisfying, but not the foreign policy debate that the American public needs and deserves in the face of all the questions we were just discussing in the previous segment. So, you know, Wolf Blitzer's first question is, why are you best prepared to be commander in chief? And now we know Shane Harris is, in fact, the best prepared. So would you leave troops in the Middle East or would you pull them out? Would you allow Iran to become a nuclear power? Yes or no? I love that that's <laughs> a yes or no Would you install a Coke machine in the cafeteria? <laughs> right. Would you have an open office plan in the East Wing? <laughs> um, you know, and and then the the wonderful, would you meet with North Korea without preconditions? I, You know, if I could meet with all of North Korea, that would be cool. But, you know, so the, these were not questions designed to actually illuminate anything about the candidates' views on the proper use or limits on the use of military force, how they would actually address these issues. And what was frustrating was not just that those were the questions, but that when Klobuchar, for example, tried to talk about the Iran nuclear deal, she was cut off by the moderators. When Buttigieg tried to talk about the need for a new authorization for the use of military force, he was cut off by the moderators. When Bernie Sanders tried to interject that, in fact, trade and climate change are intimately related issues, he was cut off and told, no, 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 climate change is a separate topic. You can't talk about that right now. I want to bring you back to trade. So that, I thought, was a, a real fail by the moderators. But I thought the candidates failed as well. And they failed partly because our whole domestic debate about foreign policy is impoverished and it's become all about troops. So the commander in chief question became a question about, do you like the troops? You know, and they all said, yes, all the troops should have health care and they should get education, but we should pull them out. That was sort of the consensus among the six people on stage. And that's what it means to be commander in chief. All of this, you know, I think is just an abd – it is not the foreign policy debate we need at a moment of crisis and renewed geopolitical competition. None of it talks about the costs of American national security, the trade-offs. 
you know, we spend 20 minutes talking about the cost of Elizabeth Warren's health care plan and not a second talking about the costs of the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan. So I I would wish that we could have another debate that is better suited to tackling the issues at stake. Well, and it seems like <clears throat> and, and people, you know, the debates maybe who knows. I mean, it seems like debates always are so deeply unsatisfying on, on so many fronts, but I wonder if the, the 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 main question and maybe the only question voters feel is worth asking, well, that's overstating it, is going to be are you temperamentally suited to be commander in chief, which I think historically then is a question. Talk about character. Well, there you go. So I mean, my guess one question I have is like cuz this didn't I think used to be a question that we asked so much. But obviously, Democrats' case will be that Donald Trump is just not fit for it. But it's, have any of them demonstrated that they're not? But I actually think that that might reinforce Tammy's point because ultimately in the general election, it is going to be a contest of character and temperament and control when it comes to foreign policy and national security issues. That is the contrast Democrats are going to show. And so to the extent that Democratic debates are about differentiating between candidates and understanding the actual sort of model that uh, that each individual candidate might bring as a way of differentiating, you know, who do you actually want to support and vote for, that this is probably the forum for that. The one thing I, I would note, though, is that foreign policy is, is, is an area in which we see candidates say lots of things and have lots of feelings about constrained executive power and about the way in which they want to see the world. And we see president after president after president be handed a world that is, you know, shockingly inconvenient to actually achieving those goals. And so I do wonder if the reality is that actually when it comes down to the decisions we see being made in the Oval Office, character and temperament actually do matter more in terms of outcomes um, rather than sort of the, the, the grand vision. So – I actually have a different explanation for why this foreign policy debate was so boring. I agree that the question sucked. But let's – Yes or no, Ben? But let, but let <laughs> Moving on. Let's put the blame where the blame actually lies here. The candidates are not deep foreign policy thinkers. And there have been times in both parties where you know presidential candidates or presidential aspirants have been – you know whatever other flaws they may have had, pretty profound foreign policy thinkers. I would, the most famous of these, of course, is Richard Nixon, who the year before he runs for president in 68, writes this foreign policy article about possibly opening to China, right? I mean, like there's some big thinking going on there. Hillary Clinton, lots of faults. She's a, she has a serious, serious foreign policy mind. Of the, the six of them, uh, Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders. Bernie Sanders has no interest in talking about any foreign policy at all, except hating trade agreements and not wanting, ever, you know, not wanting having voted against the Iraq War. That's the sum. Bernie total. Sanders did vote against the Iraq War, though. Yeah. Yes. Yes. And he wants you to know that. Uh, I mean, that's the sum total of all. I'm oh, sorry. All of his foreign policy willingness to talk. Uh, Elizabeth Warren basically doesn't want to talk about foreign policy. Pete Buttigieg is a nice young man and wants to talk about foreign policy, but it's like almost nobody wants to hear him talk about Well, he also foreign. wants to remind you that he was in the military. Exactly. Right? 
And then Joe Biden is so inarticulate that though he may have things to say about foreign policy, he actually doesn't manage to say them very effectively. And Which so, is kind of amazing because he was the chairman of the Senate Foreign Relations Right, right. Committee. Like he's actually somebody who probably has ideas, but he's just not very good at the cold communication of he ideas. He seemed to have a thing. bad night. Yeah. And so like – I I think the real explanation for why this foreign policy debate is so impoverished is that the candidates actually don't have very much to say about it, none of which is a particular liability because their real message on foreign policy is that guy's really scary. You don't want him in charge. And that message is going to be completely consistent, irrespective of who the candidate is. OK. And that to me was the major fail of that half hour of conversation because only one of the six of them actually made that point. Amy Klobuchar, you know, pivoted off the are you best prepared to be commander in chief to say, you know, we really should be talking about the guy who almost just started a war and how dangerous that is and how we have to get rid of that. And she was cut off. <laughs> so, you know, but but she was the only one who even thought to do it. And I thought that that was kind of amazing. I also find it amazing, you know, and, and this was one of those generation gap moments last night because there is such an age range on that stage with Bernie and Biden on one end and, and Buttigieg on the other. And Bernie and Biden are going back and forth on who voted for what war. And then Buttigieg says, like, there are people I served with that are barely old enough to remember those votes. Like, you guys, <laughs> nobody cares about your ancient votes. And and so maybe part of the issue here is a generation gap in the Democratic Party and the Democratic base that's reflected in the candidates that they can't even agree about what's important and what we should be talking about. Look, there, there's also a piece of this in which it's quite clear that there is something about candidate Donald Trump's foreign policy vision that actually resonated with some portion of the American public. And so thinking about what that means and how you communicate and and what it means for the Democratic Party and the mythical Obama-Trump voters and, and seeing that vision actually realize and what a catastrophe it is. I mean, this is rich territory, you know, and for yet candidates no to one has on managed that. to articulate the case. Like there's very traditionally in Republican versus Democrat on foreign policy, you have the Republicans saying we have to have a strong military and we have to be internationalists. And you have the Democrats saying we really need to do more through negotiation and war needs to be a last resort. And for years, Democrats were at a disadvantage with the American public on national security, something that reversed over the last five years. Hillary Clinton was the first Democratic candidate to have a public opinion advantage on national security over the Republican candidate. You're right that Trump's sort of bizarre isolationist why do we have alliances, let's bring all the troops home, resonates with the American people. And he's the one who just threw all that out the window, which seems to me like a, an opening wide enough to drive an entire Democratic Party through. So to me, you know, that too was a missed opportunity last night, but maybe they'll figure out how to do it. Well, over and the, the polling is suggesting that more Americans think that we are less safe after the strike on Soleimani than uh, then we are safe. So it may be, to your point, Tammy, that uh, he is just engaged here in an action that is uh, not going to sit well with his voters. And ultimately, again, this is, the election is practically around the corner. Yeah, I just I, I think that's exactly right. And I think, you know, when the Democrats coalesce around a candidate and the focus turns to Trump, 
the contradictions inherent in his uh, in his kind of militaristic chest thumping isolationism, you know, there's a lot of work to be done with that. And he's very vulnerable on it because it actually doesn't make any sense. Does it make sense, Ben? Yes or no? Well, <laughs> no. That's all. I, sorry, rant over. Sad foreign policy expert over here. <laughs> uh, all right, let's move on to object lessons. Uh, I'll go first. Actually, uh, I just want to make a quick plug for a new book that is going to be coming out. Uh, I think next Tuesday, actually, January twenty first by my colleagues at The Post, Phil Rucker and Carol Lennig. It is called A Very Stable Genius, Donald J. Trump's Testing of America. It is, uh, we have seen so many books about inside Trump land, uh, but Phil and Carol are really two of the best reporters uh, and really elegant writers, and I love them to death. Done a lot of good work with them. But uh, So I'm biased, but check out this book. You can pre-order it now. I am going to show what a big soul I have. This book is coming out the same day as Susan and my book. I wasn't going to mention that. And I just want to say uh, I agree with Shane. Yeah. <laughs> I, th- I think it's going to be really excellent and uh, they're terrific. And You can buy them both. Yeah. Go buy it. Read yeah. more, guys. <laughs> if you haven't heard by now that Ben and Susan have a book coming out, then you must be tuning in for the first time. <laughs> How dare you? <laughs> <laughs> Uh, who wants to go next? Tammy. Okay. So, you know, I I um I decided to comfort my wounded foreign policy geek soul this morning by going back to look at a previous presidential debate transcript to see how television reporters uh, asked candidates questions about foreign policy and national security before our ADHD era. <laughs> And uh, and so I went back to the Carter-Reagan presidential debate of October 28th, 1980, so, you know, a week before the election, where uh, Marvin Stone of U.S. News and World Report – and again, you know, remember, we had an Iran hostage crisis. We had uh, the, the Soviets in Afghanistan. There was a lot going on and potential renewed conflict for the United States. And Marvin Stone of U.S. News and World Report – said, the first question was, what are the differences between the two of you on the uses of military power? Like, oh, wow. Okay. Yes or no? Yes or no. That's a thoughtful (laughs) question. And the follow-up was, I'd like to be a little more specific on the use of military power. Under what circumstances would you use military force to deal with, for example, a shutoff of Persian Gulf oil if that should occur? or to counter Russian expansion beyond Afghanistan into either Iran or Pakistan. I ask this question in view of charges that we are woefully unprepared to project sustained power in that part of the world. Wow. And I thought- said, President Carter, you have seven minutes to <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Well, it was a different era, and they didn't interrupt each other, and there were only two of them. But the fact that a reporter was able to ask a question yes. of that detail and sophistication. And use the phrase project sustained power, which <laughs> sounds he, like an addition of rational security. Right. He even said, and I emphasize the word sustained. Yeah. <laughs> and that the candidates were prepared to answer it. So it's not impossible to have a substantive foreign policy and national security debate. And come on, guys, you got a few more months. Figure it out. Senator Klobuchar, more tanks, less tanks. Yes. She said, it's fewer tanks. 
<laughs> Go ahead. So my object lesson is an amicus brief um, filed today in the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Court. Ooh. Is it a friendly brief? It is a friend of the court. Uh, by uh, a lawfare contributor, David Chris, a friend of lawfare, and uh, no, as a m- member of law, he's got a new board. job. Yeah, so well, he's ordered by the Fisk to write a brief assessing the FBI's uh, proposed efforts to fix the problems identified with respect to FISA accuracy in the Inspector General's report, and um, David, who is. Uh, the sort of picture of nonpartisan FISA expertise uh, immediately became the subject of outraged controversy up to and including a presidential tweet denouncing him as extremely controversial. Sean Hannity did a big thing on it. The whole right-wing media ecosystem went bananas denouncing David Chris. Uh, over, what? they didn't even know who he was, they, but they well, denounced. They him denounced anyway. him anyway. All right, so today he files his brief. It is sixteen, fifteen, sixteen single-spaced pages, incredibly dense, totally apolitical, and get this actually says the FBI's uh, proposed remedies don't go far enough. So all these people who were denouncing David for being, you know, like a sort of democratic, swampy, partisan defender of the FBI, uh, you know, you guys all got it wrong. He's uh, uh, none of those things. And uh, you should all read the briefs and have a good laugh over the real David Chris, who is just like a frickin' FISA nerd. Sean Hannity was talking about this. Yeah, it was on Hannity, and Chuck also... Grassley tweeted about it. Wasn't there also no some punctuation Fox News story that referred to like liberal blog? Yeah, they called it. They, they accused him of being a liberal who writes for Lawfare. You've um, come a long way from being a handmaiden of the security state. You know, Seriously. the funny thing is, like, that's still what they're accusing us <laughs> of. Right? It's just that that went from being a conservative thing to being a liberal thing. Yeah, my t- <laughs> we're living in the upside down. Uh, Susan, your object. My object is not been in my forthcoming book, <laughs> Shane. Which you should buy. It's yeah. a conversation about Ben and <laughs> On Tuesday at the Brookings Institution at 10 a.m., we're going to sit the down shameless plug edition? with the Washington <laughs> Post, with the uh, Washington Post editor Fred Hyatt, to have a conversation about all of the insanity. And if you are in Washington D.C., you should come, and you can RSVP online. And if you are not in Washington D.C., there is a webcast. And um, so there, Shane. And buy the book. And buy the book. I bought the book already. Yeah, bought it, and I have a copy. You're gonna have to buy three Be like copies Shane. to get out of trouble. <laughs> I, I, I'll buy the Kindle. I'll buy the hard copy. You gave me a hard copy, which we, you can have you sign. We did the audio book ourselves, so you should listen. Actually, to the book. I have an Audible credit that I, I I have so many damn Audible credits. I think I want to listen to you guys read it. I find that listening to people read books is the way I actually read more books. Our dulcet tones. Yeah. It'll be like just like I'm listening to you on the podcast, except I'm not there. And it goes on and on and on. <laughs> uh, well, what's not going on anymore is this podcast. 
we're wrapping it up. Aww. Aww. We'll be back next week. Which is perfectly time. normal and very common under American <laughs> totally. law. Listen, this podcast is totally cool under American law, guys. Don't worry. I'm a lawyer. I'm not committing any crimes. I know how to avoid doing no that. No crimes. That's the subject line. No crimes. No crimes. I know all the crimes. Don't worry about it. Rational Security is, of course, a production of Lawfare. You can find our show page at lawfareblog.com. You can find totally common T-shirts and underwear at the lawfare store. Dot com slash trouser shop. <laughs> Pens, lanyards. Lanyards now? Yeah. Really? Notebooks. Oh. No underwear. No underwear. No underwear allowed at Lawfare. You can follow us on Twitter. <laughs> There's just nowhere else to go with that, guys. At RATL Security. Uh, when you are on Facebook, you can find us there. And when you download the podcast, please remember to leave a rating and review. It really helps us out. Our audio engineer this week is Michaela Fogel. The show is produced and edited by Jen Patia Howell. Music this week by Lev Parnas and the Feverish Baskets. Yes. Oh, yeah, well said. That. You got it. Basket, or Feverish Basket Case. Yeah, that's good, right? He would totally be the front man for that with that haircut. Just up there like, blah, 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 blah. <laughs> just like- spewing shit out of <laughs> Stream of consciousness punk. Speaking yes. of which. He's like, wrap it up. Wrap it up. Get Sophia Yan in here to play us off. On behalf of my good friends, Susan Hennessy, Ben Wittes, and Tomorrow Kaufman Wittes, I'm Shane Harris. We'll talk to you next week. Bye-bye. Bye. 